Hello and welcome to episode 74 of On Liberty, coming to you live from the Center for Independent Studies in Sydney, Australia. I'm your host, Salvatore Babonis, and joining me today is Professor Gigi Foster, Professor of Economics at the University of New South Wales and co-author of The Great COVID Panic, What Happened, Why, and What to Do Next. We'll be talking to Gigi about what else, the coronavirus, and the data behind the science. Gigi Foster, how are you? Very well. Thanks for having me on, Salvatore. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, thanks for coming on the show. You're a big celebrity. This book is one of the best sellers in Australia, I see. Uh, my first question for you is the most general of all. Professor Foster, what happened? Why? <laughs> and what should we do next? <laughs> well, I mean, those are the questions that, uh, you know, we think are the, the most important of our time to really reckon with this uh, historical period. And it's why we've written the book. Um, in fact, the subtitle was selected by our children collectively. And, um, and we do try to do exactly what the subtitle says in the book. And I can give you a, a little bit of a, of a preview or a summary. So what happened is, is the biggest policy failure of our generation around the world, not just in Australia, and a, a colossal amount of human damage, self-inflicted. And um, when you think as an economist, what you think about is what we could have had instead. What could we have done? What other alternative future could we have created for ourselves um, with all of the resources that we have pumped into our COVID response? And the reality there is we could have done so much better. And we will never see those outcomes, of course, on anybody's spreadsheet because they won't materialize. But that notion of the counterfactual is, is definitely something that motivates me and my co-authors as economists. But even if you don't have a clear picture of that counterfactual, you can very, uh, very easily understand this book. And particularly it's chapter five, the tragedy shows what the scale of the damage was and in what areas the, the damage has taken place and will continue to take place over the next generation. So that's what's happened. Why it's happened is a, basically a multi-part answer. So I can't give an easy one, but I will say there are political reasons. There are reasons to do with um, concentration in industries, reasons to do with, uh, with science going bad, reasons to do with all sorts of different power dynamics, basically, and loyalty dynamics, as well as a very important role played by crowd psychology, which I think many people have not, didn't anticipate. I certainly didn't anticipate it um, because really we haven't seen a crowd like this in our generation. And, and so we have chapters on each of these really important phenomena that have been part of what has created this, this mess for us. And what to do next? Well, there are many lessons to draw from this period, but one of the most important we feel is the need to, as we move forward, create ways to uh, inject more diversity of thought and perspective into the decision-making bodies of our societies. And this means not just in terms of politics, but also in terms of science, we need to find ways to better understand and incorporate diverse perspectives in order not to go so stupid so fast as we've seen in Australia and around the world, but Australia has been a particularly bad example. And for those of you who are joining late, we are talking to Professor Gigi Foster, co-author of the Great Pandemic, or sorry, The Great COVID Panic, What Happened, Why, and What to Do Next, available now from the Brownstone Institute. Gigi, uh, we can't talk to an economist without talking cost-benefit. Now, you just telegraphed in your opening remarks how we could have had different uses for the kinds of money that was spent on coronavirus. What were the costs of dealing with coronavirus, and what could we have done differently? 
So great question. And it's one that our governments should have been the ones to answer. Um, after all, the governments were the ones in March and April of 2020 that were uh, setting in place these very draconian restrictions on uh, basically normal life and normal liberties. And so it was incumbent upon them to justify those restrictions on the basis of human welfare, because that is what in a democratic state we look to governments to provide is maximum human welfare and thriving, well-being, however you like to say it. But the Australian government, like many around the world, failed to come to the table with such a justification. And so in August of 2020, I actually uh, testified to the Victorian parliament here, Victoria is one of our states here, um, and gave them a, a draft sort of proof of concept cost-benefit analysis that I had drawn up based on my the best data that I could get my hands on, which enumerated the kinds of costs of lockdowns. So the idea was, well, is a lockdown a good idea? Let's compare the benefits to the costs relative to simply not locking down and possibly targeting protection as I thought it should be targeted to the people who are most likely to seriously be ill or die from this virus. And the kinds of costs that just were not being accommodated by the government included things like crowded out healthcare, direct mental health damage by being isolated from, from other people and unable to work, um, and children whose uh, schooling had been disrupted, who would be then suffering in the short run and the longer term as their human capital, as we call it, would be damaged by that and many other different kinds of costs. And I essentially enumerated these, showed a way in which from an economic standpoint, these costs could be accommodated and then compared them to my very generous estimate of the benefits of locking down. Now, as it happens now with 18 months of hindsight, we can say for sure that lockdowns do not actually reduce deaths with COVID. So in fact, there was no point in doing the lockdowns at all. It was cost all around. But at the time, you know, I thought as well as many other people around the world thought that there would be at least some benefit. And so I assumed that there would be um, a benefit Then I used the Sweden experience to calibrate the amount of benefit that I thought would be available. And even assuming that, lockdowns were still in my analysis, much more costly than not locking down on net. And so that's what I presented. And I was hoping that it would, uh, you know, start a running for a more detailed cost benefit analysis. It still hasn't. So I'm now creating a, an expanded version of that analysis that I hope to have ready by the end of the year. Now we are a live show. Let me say a quick hello to Christopher, Leanne, Locke, uh, and Anthony, we miss you. <laughs> Looking forward to having you back next week. Uh, we would love to take some questions from the audience. So please do get your questions in and we will feed them through to Professor Foster. Um, Gigi, you said something very provocative in your last answer. You said that lockdowns did not actually save lives. Can you walk us through that highly provocative claim? Sure. So, um, as you know, uh, there have been differences around the world in how governments have responded to the COVID crisis. Some governments have reacted by placing very stringent restrictions on their populations. Others have been less stringent. And in the book, which is here, by the way, this is what it looks like if you find it on Amazon, um, we classify governments around the world into three categories, the minimalists, the pragmatists, and the COVID cults. And Australia is a COVID cult. So we have taken some of the most extreme restrictions uh, on our population's liberty. And, and basically we make this classification using a stringency index, which was put out by the Blavatnik School of Governments at the University of Oxford. So it's not our direct analysis of stringency measures, but it's this other uh, pretty reputable source on how stringent basically were governments around the world. So if you classify countries that way, and then you map just over time, how much death have they experienced with COVID 
during this period, you can see that actually the countries that have done the best in terms of COVID deaths are the minimalists. The second best, the pragmatists, and the worst are the COVID cults. So actually stringency of restrictions, if anything, is related positively to losing people from COVID. And, and there are many other things that also go wrong when you have those stringent restrictions, as I just spoke about. So, you know, you have loneliness and, and deprivation mentally, you have stress that you cause, you have children's harms, you have crowded at healthcare. And basically the, the, the sum total of knowledge now is essentially what it was at the start of 2020, which which is that lockdowns are extremely expensive and inappropriate to deal with most health threats for the, those very reasons. So that was a truth already embodied in our pandemic management plans before 2020, which simply got discarded in the panic and fear of March 2020 and April 2020 by governments around the world. And that is what's caused our massive amounts of, of self-inflicted damage. We do have audience questions already coming in. Let me just say a quick hello to Emily. Jean uh, sends you a compliment. Great book, Gigi. <laughs> Keep up the good work. Um, and he also wants to ask you a question. How do we prevent future overreactions by governments? Terrific, terrific question. And that's why we have the what to do next portion of the subtitle here, right? We thought that was one of the most important things that we could try to provide. Now, I will say first that we are three economists, so we do not uh, hold the, the, the world store of knowledge in our minds. And so these are simply our suggestions. One of the things we uh, definitely include is the call for other professionals and other disciplines to add their voice and add their knowledge to the, the pot of ideas about what we can do to try to immunize if you'll forgive the pun, our societies from this kind of overreaction in future. But we have a few ideas. One is that recognizing the, the social wave of fear that really kind of took us off in the wrong direction in March and April, we think maybe there would be a role for having a transnational uh, fear monitoring kind of organization. Um, it would have to be set up very carefully. We'd have to you know, ensure that it wouldn't be exploited and all these things, but we call it the World Anti-Hysteria Organization, which would be monitoring social media uh, for signs of extreme panic about a particular thing and would depress where possible, would try to diffuse and, and make it less likely that everyone would get carried away with this panic while still preserving a, a proportionate response. Because um, this was one of the big problems in March, right? It was the population's fear, which actually ended up pushing the, the politicians into these very draconian restrictions. So in some sense, we can't blame only the politicians. We must also take responsibility as populations for our own fear panicked reaction, which really caused those, those actions. And the other things that we, we suggest are really about this building of diversity into our institutions going forward. So that's not really about um, directly tackling the hysteria, but it's rather about preserving diversity of perspectives so that when we get a future threat, we are not all thinking the same way, nor do we even think it's a good idea to think the same way, right? What we need to do is agree on actions, but if we force our society or expect our society to all agree on the way to think or the perspective to take on a problem, then we are weakening ourselves. We are, we are putting ourselves into a position where we again could become very stupid very fast, which is what's happened here. So we, we suggest things like um, building in more citizen jury activity in order to try to get a more direct democracy element operating for the appointment of people who are at the tops of ministries, for example, rather than having them be political appointments, which are you know, more likely than to be tainted by the, the monoculture that is infecting politics. In the scientific realm, we also suggest that governments could take a role by uh, financing new schools of thought. 
uh, and just do that from discipline to discipline every year. Some, you know, just one discipline gets a, gets a Guernsey to have a new school of thought, giving an injection of money that then they can use for 10 years and um, basically don't have to conform with the, the, the dominant ideas in, in that discipline at the time. After 10 years, if they are successful, they will have made their mark. If not, they die, fine. But at least the government is then proactively, explicitly supporting diversity within science. Your thoughts about fear spark my own thinking as a sociologist about um, how data mediate our experience of reality. If you think back to the Black Death, if a third of the population dies, we don't need data to tell us what's happening with a disease. Of course, it's right in front of everybody. Everyone can experience it. But with something like coronavirus, we only really know about what's happening because we see the numbers. Now, Winton has a question about this. He's asking, do subjective well-being measures provide useful data on the costs of lockdown? But I might ask you more broadly, how do we actually know things about the coronavirus pandemic? Yeah, so Salvatore, I, I mean, there are two very different answers, I would say. On the well-being question, absolutely 100% yes. The primary currency that I used in my cost-benefit analysis for the Victorian Parliament is one that's been reasonably recently developed. It's called the well-being year, the well-be, and it is based on the standard life satisfaction question that is, that is answered by respondents all over the world in many social science surveys, which is overall, how satisfied are you with your life nowadays? We answer that on a scale of zero to 10, where zero is very unsatisfied and 10 is extremely satisfied. And one well-be is essentially one unit of that zero to 10 scale enjoyed by one person for one year. Now, that kind of measure or metric, which is based in subjective well-being, you're asking someone how well their life is going, basically, that can be used to capture the kinds of damage in the short run, particularly, that we have done to populations by locking them inside, away from their friends, out of the sun, uh, without being able to exercise as much, and all the rest. And in fact, it's been found using the, those kinds of data uh, in the UK and also recently in Australia that when you lock a population down, you essentially drop that, uh, that, that answer on that scale by about 0.5 of a point, about 0.5 of a well-be if the lockdown were to last a year. Now, if you aggregate that across everyone in a given population, you get a very large figure for lost welfare. And that can be translated to currencies that we already uh, discuss and use when we're talking about health interventions and how much we are we can afford to pay for them, which is the quality, the quality adjusted life year and dollars, of course. Right? And so in normal times, we're willing to pay about 50,000 Australian dollars to buy one quality from a drug company, say, and one quality can be equated to about six wellbees because of the difference in average responses between somebody who's indifferent between living and dying, which is about a two on that satisfaction scale, and somebody who is very healthy, which is usually on average about an eight. So the difference there is six, that means that you can then translate from well-bees to qualities to dollars, and you can aggregate then all of the various costs that these lockdown policies have had, as well as potential benefits, when there have been some, including things like fewer commuting deaths and, um, you know, a, a few um, saved homicides because people don't go to the pubs and then accidentally off each other. There are things like that that have happened. Um, and you can then have everything uh, be on the same currency, on the same page, and have an apples-to-apples -apples comparison. Now, on the question of how do we know anything, Look, great question, and um, and I think you know during this period we've actually seen people um, trust their eyes more than the, the the data on the screen, particularly in the later stages of this period, because they've seen 
how badly various bits of data and supposed information have been manipulated to serve various different stories, right? There have been no, no scarcity of, thought, of, of data and you know, data points and observations and supposed information during this period. There has been a scarcity of common sense but no scarcity of data. And so when you look at a particular number, you know, you are always in the back of your mind having to ask, does this actually make sense according to how I think the world operates, according to what is important to the people reporting this data point, according to, you know, how, how everything else that I think is operating around this number probably looks. And it's a very, very difficult exercise. You know, we talk about source analysis to our high school students. It's not easy. I mean, that is a very advanced skill now, given how much data we're bombarded bombarded with every day. So um, in, in the book, we go through a number of examples of, of how to think about data and how data can be misused by both journalists and scientists and politicians to you know, come up with ideas that maybe they initially thought were correct and then just took hold and couldn't be dislodged, which is one of the things that's happened in science, or even just to cherry pick and generate a story which was convenient for them for political reasons. So both of those kinds of um, manipulation have happened and, uh, and we try in the book to, to educate our readers about how that happens. We, uh, Christopher wants to know, uh, was such bad policy the product of unprecedented mediocrity in political leadership? And I'll follow up that rhetorical question with a question from Leanne, can you please run for parliament? Uh, which I suppose depends on you renouncing your American citizenship. <laughs> but let me push you a little farther on data. There's a big section of your book devoted to the Diamond Princess uh, example. The Diamond Princess was the cruise ship that was went around the South China Sea and eventually docked in Japan and was kept off, uh, well, was kept in dock, but uh, uh, people were kept on the ship for the entirety of February and March. And so it operated as a kind of um, experiment in how the coronavirus spread. And a lot of our understanding of how deadly the coronavirus was came from the case fatality rate emerging from the Diamond Princess. But your book has a, well, a thoroughgoing reanalysis of those case fatality rates. Whose numbers should we believe about how deadly the coronavirus is? Well, this is the, the as we call it in the book, the bog of statistical virulence measures. There are many different measures of virulence. There's the case fatality rate, the infection fatality rate, and the population fatality rate. And the nuanced differences between those are generally not perceived by Joe Bloggs on the street. So if you tell Joe Bloggs that the case fatality rate is 3%, let's say, he hears, if I am exposed to this virus, I have a 3% chance of dying, right? That's simply not true. And the reason is because the identification of a case is something that happens only when someone goes to get tested, fronts up to the doctor's office with symptoms, et cetera. And in the case of the coronavirus, we know that there's an awful lot of asymptomatic infection going around. And so for the, for the Diamond Princess case, what we did was simply take the very raw numbers on how many people were there, how many people died, how many people died after the ship was evacuated, and how many people tested positive for the coronavirus. Now, that testing of you know the COVID is in your nose is is something very very important which we which we often you know don't perceive if we're just a man on the street uh, as being so crucial to coming up with an estimate of that very important population fatality rate which is essentially if the virus were let rip within a particular country what fraction of people would die with it. Yeah. 
If you believe the test statistics in terms of, yes, you know, you, do, you did have a COVID um, infection or you didn't from the Diamond Princess, then you get a very different answer for the infection fatality rate than you do if you think, well, you know what, it was a cruise ship and probably everybody at some point got exposed, but they just may not have tested positive because you know the, the first defense of the immune system may have kicked this infection out of their body. And indeed, we've seen that there's been more and more accumulating evidence of asymptomatic infection happening, particularly amongst healthy young people. Now, people on a cruise ship are older and they seem to be a little bit more you know, vulnerable, um, not as much so as you might think because people who go on a cruise ship are you know traveling and active, so even more so than the average 65-year-old, but still, we know this virus virus is extremely uh, age skewed in its effects. And so we go through that reanalysis and come up with a rough guesstimate of a population fatality rate of more like 0.2% or 0.1% rather than the 1% that was being bandied about as sort of, well, this looks like it's the, you know, the rate that matters, whatever label you associate that with. Now that's a huge difference. That's an order of magnitude. And that, and Again, you know, that was not something admitted by those who were putting out the estimates from this uh, experiment initially early on. And when you don't admit the failings of science or the limitations of your knowledge based on, you know, not knowing how good the test is, you know, how accurate it is and, and anything about really asymptomatic, you know, likelihood of, of being able to throw the virus off without having a test that's positive, you really can't say anything about the population fatality rate. And there's a responsibility of a scientist in that situation to admit that, but very little incentive to do so. Gigi, uh, you're aware that at the same time your book is out, there's also another book out by a prominent Australian coronavirus investigator by Sherry Markson, What Really Happened in Wuhan. Now, I know your book is not about China, but do you have any thoughts about China's relationship with uh, the coronavirus panic? Christopher in particular is curious, did China try to provoke an overreaction in the West? Uh, with its selective manipulation of coronavirus messaging. But I'm just curious what your thoughts are on China's impact on how the rest of the world perceived the coronavirus. So this is a question about politics, and, and I didn't actually answer the previous one, so let me go to that one first. Is there a crisis of expertise in, in the political profession? Oh, yes, very much so. But I, I wouldn't say it's, it's expertise uh, in general. They're actually very, very effective politicians that we have in, in place at the moment. What they are not is representative of the broader population. And the reason for this is because we have career politicians now. We have a system in which um, you sort of are groomed from you know, being 18 years old to kind of work in the political realm and, and know how to operate as a politico rather than coming from an existing profession and really representing that profession, such as uh, law or economics or, or sociology or, or farming or anything else. And, and that kind of representation is what we initially had in mind, right? Our ancestors, when we set up this notion of democracy and representative democracy, but it's been um, essentially mis misguided because of this career politician aspect. And so we've got politicians who really care about their careers. That's what we've got. Uh, and so this is the sort of thing that we, we end up getting. In terms of China, look, my read on China, and, and I don't, I haven't studied it in depth, but I do know some people who have and are very, very deeply involved with, uh, you know, understanding the perspective of China. Their basic message is that the Chinese leadership care mainly about making sure that their leadership doesn't look bad. That's just the main thing they care about. And so in the in the March 2020 or April 2020 context of where you know they had been locking down Wuhan. In fact, I'm, I'm reading that that uh, what where they happened in Wuhan book right now. It's on my table. Um, in that context, um, they they would have had the desire to make sure that their lockdown response 
was not seen as stupid <laughs> by the rest of the world. And so to that extent, sure, there's an incentive to, to get other people to do it so that it doesn't look so dumb, right? And so that I believe, uh, I would believe that there is an image concern on the part of the Chinese leadership uh, to, to make sure that they don't made, get made fun of or you know, otherwise uh, pilloried or just criticized in any way. They're much more sensitive to that, I think, even than our politicians, who of course also don't want to be uh, seen to be stupid. And this is one of the reasons why we've seen this, uh, uh, the, the trajectory of political decisions that we have, including most recently the politicization of, of medical decisions, um, because the politicians need it. That's, that's why, um, for image reasons. But the Chinese are just take that to a whole new level. And so, you know, do I think that there's some evil genius plotting, you know, to, to destroy the West who's sitting in China somewhere? No, I don't. And, and if, I mean, just for evidence of that, how has it been then, uh, if they've been so successful at this, that they've, you know, not been able to basically protect their own fertility and their own population in various ways during this crisis? I mean, they've, they've had pretty horrible results as well, which, you know, if you thought that this genius was all about pro-China, then they would have been focused on that, right? And I think there's a bit of hubris in thinking that the West is really that important to China, that it really wants to control all of us and has the capacity to control all of us. I mean, it's just very difficult to imagine from an economic standpoint, the coordination that would be necessary to engineer this thing, um, you know, I mean, socially engineer everybody's response. Uh, and so we, we kind of, we also have a section on the book, uh, of the book about exactly that, asking whether it could be that some, somebody planned this and it's all kind of, you know, falling out as per his plan. As a reminder, we're talking to Professor Gigi Foster about her new book, The Great COVID Panic, What Happened, Why, and What to Do Next. Gigi, you do highlight in your book a scientific establishment drunk on power. That's my words, not yours, but uh, that's the message I got. Uh, Benjamin has a question. Are our, are our politicians innocent victims of a health bureaucracy inducing a mass psychosis that led to a panicked decision-making? Or were the politicians knowingly exploiting the disaster for their own political gain? Um, so that's a really great question, and I would point the readers to um, the characters we have in the book that show the different ways in which people have responded to the events that have unfolded. One way is in this sort of fear and desire for protection and not really thinking about exploitation of others, but just being scared. That's what we call our Jane character. Then there's a character called James, who is an opportunist. And James has operated in um, governments and also in industry during this period. And he has looked for advantage in the various kinds of things that have happened. And I do think that many of the politicians during this period have been James's, but James doesn't necessarily always have to be consciously trying to exploit others' disadvantage. So a James, an opportunist during this period may have just simply been following his own incentives. He may be at some point, you know, inside himself a good person. He wants to tell himself a, a rationalization about why he's done the right thing. Um, he will eagerly soak up the, the statements from the chief health officers about how this is all about protecting public health. And he will want to believe that very badly because if the mirror is posed to him and he has to look in the mirror and say, Oh, I betrayed my populations during this period. I, my decisions directly killed people. He would have a crisis, uh, an internal psychological crisis, you know. And and if we forced our politicians all to do this now, I think we would have, and, and we were successful. We would have a whole generation of them with PTSD for the rest of their lives. <laughs> so so in some sense, we the resistance. And I, and I do see it as a resistance movement of people who are trying to speak sense about COVID and COVID policymaking. We must be the ones to be. Uh, gently 
turning the people who have bought into this mainstream narrative and even inflicted it upon us. We have to gently approach them and figure out ways to engage them and get them to turn away from this damaging ideology because they're not going to do it. Right? When somebody is brainwashed and, and a member of a crowd, you know how, how crowd dynamics works out because you are a sociologist. When somebody is in that situation, they cannot see for themselves what is happening. And in fact, they project onto the resistance saying, oh, you know, those people are, uh, you know, in a fog and, and they're following conspiracy theories and they're, you know, completely misguided and they've been taken down the rabbit hole. It's the opposite. Uh, right. I mean, according to me, at least, I mean, some people will disagree, of course, but my perspective is that those people who have been most part of the problem are the ones who are the most deluded and must be helped by us to try to recover. Sadly, we do have to start wrapping up. Uh, Locke, Emily, Benjamin, I'm sorry, I can't get to your final questions. I will, though, ask you, Gigi, one final viewer question, which is from Prash. Have we learned anything from this pandemic that can be adapted at the policy level to prevent or contain future pandemics? Yes, definitely. Um, I think we've learned a lot about um, how, again, the importance of diversity in our institutional decision-making. And, and really it's a, it's a neo-enlightenment period in that sense. You know, We're realizing, oh yes, okay, we need to keep multiple voices at the table. We need to have checks and balances on power. We need to work with each other. We need to find ways to respect each other despite ideological divides. Those are, are beautiful lessons that are you know, lessons of classic liberalism. And so to rediscover those uh, after this period really truly is a, is a joy. I think we've also learned things medically. So we've learned ways in which we can repurpose existing drugs to treat respiratory illnesses. Uh, you know, just look at the long list of um, early treatments for COVID that have been trialed and some of them have been found to be successful. Some of them haven't, some of them in different combinations have been. You don't see much information about this on the mainstream media now, but it certainly is a, a true thing. So we've learned that. And I think we can take that forward uh, to, to fight future pandemics. Professor Gigi Foster, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you very much. Thanks also, thanks also to our producer, Nico Malian, to our executive producer, Max Hawk Weaver. The director of the CIS is Tom Switzer. Next week, we'll be talking to Rowan Kallick about what's really going on in China. We hope you'll see us then on On Liberty.